Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds, to another episode of You're Gonna Die Out There. This is Megan. I'm sitting across from my co-host, Jen, who will be telling our story today. I'm telling it a little early because actually I'm on vacation right now. <laughs> Losers. <laughs> wow, Jen. That's just super, saying. super rude. It is rude. But <laughs> I'm on vacation and you guys are all, what are you doing? Going to work? Lame. <laughs> you driving to work right now? Yeah. That's so rude. It is. So sad. It is. But I'm having a great time right now, whatever I'm doing. I hope so. Or else I'm like dead in the desert. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I that's so sad. That's not going to happen because I have a lot of good emergency preparedness kit items. That's right. Megan, do you have a science news for us? I do have a science news. Are you ready for I'm this science news? Super ready. This is on ScienceDaily.com, and it is entitled Tiny Robotic Crab is the Smallest Ever Remote-Controlled Walking Robot. Smaller than a flea, robot can bend, walk, twist, turn, and jump. And it's shaped like a crab? Actually, I think it's shaped like a couple other things. It's so creepy. Why is it it's creepy? that it's so, small, and it's, it's so a crab? Tiny. It's so cute. All right, so this was May 25th, 2022. Northwestern University put this article out. Just real quick, the summary, engineers have developed the smallest ever remote controlled walking robot, and it comes in the form of a tiny, adorable peaky toe crab. Just a half millimeter wide, the tiny crab can bend, twist, crawl, walk, turn, and even jump. Although the research is exploratory at this point, the researchers believe their technology might bring the field closer to realizing micro-sized robots that can perform practical tasks inside tight, confined spaces. Ew, like what? Like your ear. <laughs> like your brain. <clears throat> right? All right. Last September, the same team who came up with these robots, so they developed the little crab-shaped ones, but they mm -hmm. also did ones resembling inchworms, crickets, and beetles. Does that creep you out even more? It's super creepy. It's because it's so tiny. Like in spy movies when they put cameras on on cockroaches mm -hmm. and they order I think it makes somehow it makes the cockroaches cuter because they're like maybe little tiny spies I guess so and they're like Di -di 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 -di. I feel like no. there has to be some sort of espionage we can do with these little things oh for sure so last September the same group who have been working on these introduced a winged microchip that was the smallest ever human-made flying structure and I'm like how tiny they must be using like microscopes to put these things together like really powerful. Oh for sure. Yeah. yeah. This is a quote real quick from John A Rogers who led the experimental work. Robotics is an exciting field of research and the development of microscale robots is a fun topic for academic exploration. You might imagine micro robots as agents to repair or assemble small structures or machines in industry or as surgical assistants to clear clogged arteries, to stop internal bleeding or to eliminate cancerous tumors, all in minimally invasive procedures. So that's kind of cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Researcher Huang added, our technology enables a variety of controlled motion modalites and can walk with an average speed of half its body length per second. This is very challenging to achieve at such small scales for terrestrial robots. Oh. So I guess they can move pretty quickly. I have a friend who listens regularly to our podcast, Hoya. Oh, yeah. And uh, one of my roller derby friends. And she is not a fan of AI 
I think I mentioned it on a previous episode, but I bet this would super creep her out. I'm with her. Yeah. Interestingly, this little crab, these little devices, animals, if you will, Mm -hmm. robotics, robots, they're not powered by complex hardware, hydraulics or electricity. Instead, they are powered with within the elastic resilience of its own body. To construct the robot, the researchers used a shape memory alloy material that transforms to its, quote, remembered shape when heated up. As the robot changes from one phase to another, deformed to back to a remembered shape and back again, mm-hmm. that's how it's creating its locomotion. So you like heat it up and it's like, eh, 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 eh. like oh little, I think gosh. about a little inchworm. I was going to say they actually make that happen through lasers, shooting little lasers at it. Anyway. Lasers. <laughs> because these structures are so tiny, the rate of cooling is very fast, Rogers explains. In fact, reducing the sizes of these robots allows them to run faster. So they're going to make them smaller so they can go even faster. Just so many nightmare situations. I hope I'm, I'm so dead sorry, by guys. the time these take over the world. <laughs> they explain it as they said, to manufacture such a tiny critter, Rogers and Huang turned to a technique they introduced eight years ago, a pop-up assembly method inspired by a child's pop-up book. Oh, well, yeah. I like that. That's kind of neat. Okay. Yeah, it's like happy thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, the team fabricated precursors to the walking crab structures on flat planar ge- geometrics. Then... They bonded those onto a slightly stretched rubber substrate. So when the substrate is relaxed, um, it's stretched out and then they buckle it up because it's rubber. They can Mm -hmm, buckle it up mm -hmm. and that's what causes the crab to pop up into these like three dimensional forms. Okay, that's basically I'm not probably not explaining it very well. You can always go and read the article. So you're not a robotics. I'm not a robotics person. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. Anyway, Rogers goes on to say, with these assembly techniques and materials concepts, we can build walking robots with almost any sizes or 3D shapes. But the students felt inspired and amused by the sideways crawling motion of tiny crabs. It was a creative whim. So that's cute. I mean, I just think about these like super duper smart engineering scientists. Oh, yeah. And they're just in there in the lab making stuff. And they're like, what should we make it into? And they're like, what about a crab? That would be so cool. Just super. They're just nerding out all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of neat. It's just frightening. Yeah. Like you're scared of ghosts. I'm scared of crazy technology. Oh. I'm just old. Just into the... Oh, well, you got me <laughs> listening to Unsolved, Unsolved Mysteries. Mysteries, the podcast. So good. And it's like every other episode is a ghost episode. Yes. Or like some kind of paranormal thing. And I'm so like... So good. I'm just sitting listening to those like in complete skepticism. Just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, 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 sure. So, Megan, I have a story for us today. I am excited to hear your story today. There's a few people who gave me some information and I kind of mushed it together into an episode. So recently, my mom, hey, mom, she sent me, she's always sending me some stuff. So she sent me this, some Florida man news. And I was going to, she sent it to me. She's like, maybe this could be a science news. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is an episode. A Florida man episode? No, it's not. But just... A piece of it. And then mm-hmm. I combined it with some other stuff. And I'll mention our listener who gave me the other. She sent me some news that was from April of 2019. Mm-hmm. And sadly, it's some sad news. But a 75-year-old mm-hmm. man named Marvin Hajos. H-A-J-O-S. Sure. Hajos. Marvin Hajos. Mm-hmm. I'll just leave it like that. I could be saying it wrong. He fell in his backyard. He doesn't have a normal backyard, by the way. This is in Gainesville or around Gainesville, Florida on his ranch, and he was attacked by his pet, Cassowary. Oh. 
Apparently, he fell near a fenced area where the cassowary was kept and within striking distance of its insanely large, insanely sharp talons. That's awful. There is a recording. You can watch a video, not of it happening, but of it's like a recording of his 911 call. Mm. And you can hear him like trying to talk to the 911 operator and like we used in an ambulance. And he's like, you know, I'm bleeding to death. I'm going to die. And he actually did end up dying from his injuries. Later, an autopsy showed a diagram of his injuries that showed a dozen lacerations across his face, neck, back, and abdomen, thighs, legs, his right arm, including damage to his brachial artery, which is that major blood vessel that runs on your upper arm. Mm. And that's, that's what happened. He just bled to death. Jesus. I know. That's very scary. Fish and wildlife in the area, they went, you know, the sheriff's department went, the fish and wildlife people went. They ended up, per his request, and I don't know if he gave it right then or at some other time. Had he like told, in his will or yeah, something. Yeah, had people he worked, because there were people that helped him work in, around his ranch. Mm-hmm. But he said that he, no matter what, he wanted his pets to be auctioned to other people who wanted them not to be destroyed. Okay. It's, it's listed as a class two wildlife that can also and this is quotes, can also pose a danger to people. Substantial experience and specific cage requirements must be met. Mm. Permits are required for public exhibition, sale, or personal possession of a class two wildlife, but the agency doesn't regulate breeding. And apparently he was breeding them for whatever reason. You know, everybody, if you look up, did you look up a cassowary? I forgot what cassowaries look like. I remember that they were kind of like ostriches, like they're big birds. They look like dinosaurs. But they look, they look, you're, it looks like totally a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. They say that everybody kind of knows they can be dangerous, kind of like having an ostrich or an emu, which we're also going to talk about. Mm. This is one bird that's definitely known to have killed humans. Humans. So I'm going to talk about cassowaries, but just before we get started on that, I'm also going to talk about other big birds, such as ostriches big and bird. emus. And like big bird, you know, I actually called my notes big scary birds. <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out before we get started to Kayleen, who is uh, one of our Instagram followers and listeners. And she was nice. saying one of our show ideas, she said her boyfriend is really scared of ostriches and emus. And other large dinosaur-like birds. So I think she meant cassowaries, too. (laughs) And she said that to give him a shout out because his name is Chase. Okay. So, hey, Chase, this is for you. Enjoy. And Kayleen. Also, we got a message from Kayleen after we did the lightning episode. And she lives like 10 miles from that area where that guy got um, the park ranger, the spark ranger. Yes. Kept getting struck, which is on Skyline Drive. And she sent us some pictures of her hiking. I'm like, don't get struck by lightning. Be careful. And she also sent some pictures of her dog, which are super cute. So, hey, Kayleen, thanks for sending that. Okay, we're going to go on with the episode now. It's going to be amazing. Let's talk about cassowaries. I'm stoked. They're large, flightless birds. They're related to emus or more distantly to ostriches, rheas, and kiwis. There are three species. Two are in rainforests in New Guinea um, or surrounding islands. The third and largest is the southern cassowary, which lives in the wet tropics of the northern Queensland area. Some live deep in tracts of rainforest, such as the Daintree area. This is also in Australia. So we're going to be talking a lot about Australia right here. 
we're going to mention Monty Python at the very end of this. Shut up. Yes. So that was a good foreshadowing moment. And others live on the forest edge. And then some even wander through people's backyards because it's Australia. Right. Crazy, dangerous, scary shit is everywhere (laughs) because Australia. Adult males can, if they stretch up all the way. Yeah. They can be more than five feet, five feet, five or more and can weigh 100 up to 110 pounds. The females are larger than the males and they can get even taller up to six feet and 160 pounds. No, thank you. Exactly. Among living birds, only ostriches are bigger than these guys. Wow. Okay. Most of the time they seem smaller than they are because they kind of slouch their necks a little bit. When they walk, they're not like stretched up, like trying to be scary. Their backs are parallel instead of like angled. I don't know if you ever watched American Horror Story. Yes. And do you remember the one, the carnival one or the circus one? Unfortunately, yes, I remember that one. And remember when they, the guy they didn't like and they turned him into like this bird thing? Yeah. It reminds me of a cassowary, oh. like the body part. That's creepy. That was, that show is so creepy. Their feathers are glossy black. Their legs are scaly. They have, um, their feet just have three toes, which are made for murdering and slashing. Apparently. So the inside of each toe has evolved into basically just a long, sharp claw. Nice. They're basically like dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. Their wings are tiny because they've shrunk over time because they don't fly, obviously. Long necks that are bare. They have like a light coating of like little hair-like feathers. Hmm. Very similar to emus and ostriches. Have you seen them? They're different because they're more red and orange, purpley blue. They have like these different colors that are really pretty. Yeah. I mean, they're really pretty. Vibrant. They're vibrant. And they have some folds of colorful skin that are called wattles that hang down. They have big brown eyes and a curved beak. And then they have this weird horn on the top of their head. It looks like a weird mohawk. It's what makes them look like a dinosaur. It makes them look prehistoric. Uh, Totally. And they call it a cask. Oh, okay. C-A-S-Q-U-E. Because they have these crazy strong legs, and we'll hear this about all of these, but these guys can run super fast, up to 31 miles per hour. Don't try to outrun them. What else can run 31 miles an hour that we talked about that was like, wow, I didn't know that. Maybe it was hippos. I saw this video of Steve Irwin being chased by a cassowary. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, I mean, I just saw it briefly. Then I was like, well, was he scared of it? So I looked up what Steve Irwin was actually scared of. And it said that the only animal that he was actually scared of was a hippo. I mean, that makes sense. We did the hippo episode. That was, they're scary. They're super scary. So not only can these guys run super fast and Mm -hmm. through like dense forests, like Mm -hmm. they're like, I don't care what's around. I'm just running through it. They can also jump almost seven feet or two meters. What? Straight up into the air. And they can also swim really well. So don't think you're going to escape these guys if they have it in their head that they're going to murder you. This is blowing my mind right now. I know. It's crazy, right? But they also, this is creepy, almost as creepy as your story. Hmm. They move kind of like people and they're people sized. People like to, you know, in areas where they follow them or, you know, there's people around, they, they name them. But it also, they fall into a lot of mythologies of rainforests, different tribes. Some believe that they were cousins of humans. Mm-hmm. And other people thought that they were living people before that had passed away and become reincarnated. They kind of thought they were their relatives. Oh. Others thought that humans were created from feathers of one, a female cassowary. Interesting. I know, right? There's also evidence from like way back that they were domesticated by humans like thousands of years ago before chickens. Like people would ride them? 
There's a picture of that. And it's funny. One of the articles was like, I wish this were true. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, who knows? Maybe somebody tried, but yeah. they're scary as hell. They're I don't dead know. now. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the thing is, so we have about how many people have been killed by these, but mm-hmm. it's very few actually. But a long time ago, who knows? Right. Right. Some of the New Guinea Highlands societies would capture cassowary chicks and raise them as like poultry or use them as ceremonial gift exchanges like and and also eat them. People eat the cat. Okay. Mm-hmm. They'll eat them. It seems like more people are into the eggs okay. than the actual eating the bird itself. I don't know why it seems to me that they would taste kind of reptilian. It seems you know? like, yeah, yeah, it feels like that, right? Yeah. They talk about the Marine people of Kandagai. They sacrificed cassowaries in certain rituals. Mm. And the Column people considered themselves related to cassowaries, which is kind of what I was saying before. Yeah. They didn't see them as birds. They saw them as kin. Studies on the Pleistocene, like the early Holocene cassowary remains in in Papua New Guinea, suggest that indigenous people at the time preferred to harvest eggs rather than the adults. They seem to have regulated their conception of the birds, possibly even collected eggs and raised them for food. So that goes way back. Although, unlike our kin, the males actually do all the child care. Oh, what? They raise the babies. They mm. actually sit on the eggs and look after the chicks for nine months or longer. I love it. I Crazy. Love it. So the females are just like, I'm just going to lay these eggs and then I'm just going to peace out because there's some hot guys over there. Deuces. Exactly. They'll lay three to eight large, bright green or pale greenish bluish eggs they're really cool looking i didn't I'm, i didn't grab a picture but look it up they're so pretty and they're huge she'll just leave them in like this leaf litter that mm. is actually prepared by the male <laughs> he's like i made us this beautiful nest she's like great just plops them out she just drops them bloop, bloop. yeah and then she leaves so each of the eggs is about three and a half to five and a half inches or nine by 14 centimeters for those who follow the metrics. So the only other eggs, I know, right? That's why I always throw it in. Because, right? you know, especially because we're kind of talking about Australia here. So True that. The only other eggs bigger are, you ostriches, it, ostriches and emus. Mm. So the male will incubate the eggs for 50 to 52 days. He'll like add some litter or remove. He just keeps the nest nice. Mm. They sound like lovely men. Lovely. They regulate the temperature. They protect the chicks. They stay with the nest. I mean, they defend it from any, you know, predators. It's just, it's just really, I really, I really love it. And I love this part that I read. It says the female does not care for the eggs or the chicks, but rather moves on within her territory to lay eggs in the nest of several other males. Oh, yeah. I like how they wrote does not care. It's like what they're saying is she doesn't care for them. He's like, I don't give a. I give no cares. Moving on. The little cassowaries are brown and have buffy stripes. That's a very Australian thing to say, don't you think? That is. Adding to their, you know, this kind of mystery of them, they have this reputation for being dangerous. I don't know why. They're big. They have claws. I mean, I don't know why anybody would be scared of that. Here's the thing. They're actually, they're fine. Problem is, guess what? People? Yes. What? That's so, crazy, Jen. I know. Stop I know. Stop crazy. I know. If cassowaries come to associate humans with food handouts, they get a little demanding and a little aggressive. So they are the moose of the large bird world. Yes. Got it. And then also, if you get close to a male with chicks, he may charge at you and attempt Mm. to protect them. 
if you try and catch or kill one, I mean, come on. Makes sense. They fight back. And they also, that's why sometimes they end up killing dogs because dogs are like being dogs. Oh, no. Yeah. So don't let your dogs run around and hang out with passwords. Yeah, don't do it. However, if you treat them, like give them their space, treat them with respect, don't give them food. They're actually very shy and very harmless. In Australia, the last recorded instance of a cassowary killing a human was in 1926. And it was in self-defense. And I'll tell you that story in a minute. Okay. As far as like what they eat, they mostly eat fruit. And I wanted to talk about this because in a single day, an adult cassowary eats hundreds of fruits and berries. They digest it in a way. It's very gentle as it Mm. goes down. So the seeds come out intact. So as they walk around in their territory, eating, drinking, doing all their things, and then they poop around, it disperses the seeds all throughout the forest. So they're excellent seed dispersers. Cool. They can range over a mile or more. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty far across like hills, rivers, everywhere. The seeds are just like being dropped. And the good thing about it is there's all there's other seed dispersers in the forest. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's like little birds and bats and marsupials. The musky rat kangaroo. Remember we talked about some of these before? And they're so cute. They eat little stuff. They'll disperse like the little seeds. But these guys eat big fruits. Those big, heavy fruits with big, heavy seeds. It's hard for those to get dispersed around. Mm. And so these are the guys that that do it. So they're known as the chief architects of the forest. Because they're the ones that are, you know, making some of these plants disperse that Mm. normally wouldn't. They're like the heavy hitters. They are. There is this one plant, I will do my best to say it because all I have is the scientific name. It's Riparosa kurangi. It's a tree all known from only a very small region in Australia's coastal rainforest. And there was one study they did that showed without passing through a cassowary, only 4% of these seeds would grow. But after they pass through a cassowary, 92%. Wow. So big difference. That's like a direct relationship. That's very cool. And sometimes, you know, I know even here when you have a seed, because we lost a lot of our seed dispersers to brown tree snakes, Mm. it's hard to do what you need to do to that seed that would happen if it passed through that bird or animal naturally. Right. Right. So it's like, you know, you can throw some seeds around, but they may not germinate Mm -hmm. because they need to go through that process. But unfortunately, there's less of the original forest there than there used to be. Of course, the forest is dwindling, Mm. as is everywhere. Right now, they say as far as cassowaries, it's listed as endangered in Australia. They believe there's about 1,500 to 2,000 left. It's not very much, which makes me question how this Florida people are getting them. And this breeding them totally reminds me of how people get chimpanzees or like big cats. It's like a weird thing. It's a weird thing. And the thing is, I think cassowaries are listed as least concern because they're mm. not a U.S. species. Right. Maybe there's something there. Mm-hmm. But I guess they're hard to count because they live alone and they're in dense forests and attempts to estimate their numbers based on DNA taken from droppings wasn't hasn't been published yet. Mm. They've also done photo IDs. But it's not clear right now. They don't have good numbers to know if the population is stable or dropping. What they do know is that cassowaries sometimes kill dogs. And dogs sometimes still kill cassowaries. So they're getting killed by animals, especially the the young birds. Mm -hmm. Feral pigs destroy their nests. And sometimes cassowaries die in pig traps. 
But another big problem out there is they get hit by cars all the time. There's a seaside town called Mission Beach where they say that they're getting killed on the roads. Several are getting killed every year. Whoa. Uh-huh. And the roads kind of go through the forest, so it's fragmented. So it's really hard. And it, it they have big territories and it goes right through their territories. Mm. So it's a problem. Let's talk about the dangerous part again. During World War II, American and Australian troops that were stationed in New Guinea, because remember they're there too, mm-hmm. were warned to avoid them, that they were dangerous. And then this 1958 book, Living Birds of the World by ornithologist Ernest Thomas Gilliard, mm-hmm. he wrote, the inner or second of the three toes is fitted with a long, straight, murderous nail. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I feel like my husband would say this about me, that I might have like a murderous toenail. Right. That's <laughs> Which can sever an arm or eviscerate an abdomen with ease. It says that there are many records of natives or probably local people mm. being killed by cassowaries. Mm. There was a study done in 2003 of tw- 221 cassowary attacks that showed that 150 had been against humans. 75% of those were from cassowaries that had been he- fed by people. Oh. 71% of the time the bird chased or charged the victim and 15% of the time they kicked. Of those attacks, 73% involved the bird expecting or snatching food, 5% involved defending their natural food sources, 15% involved defending themselves from attack, and 7% involved defending their chicks or eggs. Mm. Only one human death was reported among the 150 attacks, and that's the one I mentioned earlier. It's the first documented human death. It was on April 6, 1926. It was in Australia. 16-year-old Philip McLean and his brother, who was 13, came across a cassowary on their property and decided to try and kill it by Mm. striking it with clubs. Yikes. Not very nice. The bird kicked the younger boy who fell and he ran away. So his older brother hit the bird again. Mm -hmm. Then maybe he hit the bird and was like trying to run away. Mm -hmm. He fell. It's like a bad movie, right? This is a bad, yeah. It's a horror movie. Really, truly. And while he was on the ground, the cassowary kicked him in the neck. It severed his jugular vein nope. and he bled to death and died. They say that cassowary strikes to the abdomen are among the rarest. But in one case, there was a dog that was kicked in the belly. This was in 1995. It's recorded. Yeah. It didn't leave a puncture mark, but was such a bad bruise that the dog died later of an intestinal rupture. Mm. And then beyond that, as far as recorded, was the 2019 death that I talked about wow. in Florida. Okay. Also, just randomly, it's somebody put this in one of the articles that cassowaries hate cats. I'm like, well, whatever. I mean, because cats are just like, I'm not scared of you. Yeah. Also, attacks on horses and cows have been documented. Oh, no. It's somewhere anecdotally, they say that cassowary killed a small horse and it's confirmed that there's been attacks like from, you know, that they had lacerations. Mm. Basically, they were saying, don't ever put a cassowary with any other animals. It's just not safe. They're loners. They're loners. They you just, know, they're just like, let us live our life. They're kind of the punk rock version. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they really just don't like anybody. They don't. They're just over in the corner, just being like really angst ridden. Mm-hmm. They're like smoking some cigarettes. Definitely. They're smoking clothes. Oh, 100%. And they're just pissed. Just super pissed. Yeah. Just a lot of leather. Some death metal. Just some, a lot of like safety pins. 
They're journaling. A studded necklace. I kind of, I kind of love it. It's they have a long neck. Definitely. Well, and and on top, what? Maybe they have a lot. Maybe that's what I'm saying. They would have a lot of studs. Just the whole thing, yeah. And yeah, and maybe the journal they're using is like really used. Like they've really written a lot in it. It's like bent backwards, and when they're writing, they're just like their little floppy thing goes over their face a little bit. (laughs) The the cast, right? Just, Uh just like they're so angry, emo. It just Punk, totally and like lots of doodles and pictures. Yeah, that's it. That's the cassowaries. We're going to end cassowaries on that because that's what you need to remember. Yeah, there you go. Let's <laughs> let our friend Brian, the cartoonist. Yes, zoo draws. Yes, let's let's make that happen. Let's get it done. <laughs> OK, so ostriches. We're going to move on to ostriches. We're going to do emus last because I have a special story for them. Oh, so ostriches also flightless, but they're the largest bird in the world. We, we kind of know this. In the world. In the world. They roam Africa savanna and desert lands and get most of their water from the plants that they eat. Common name is ostrich. <laughs> the scientific name is Struthio camellus. What? They're like camels. That's a, that's a great name. <laughs> it is pretty cool. It's That's also very punk. It is. I know, right? The type of animal? Bird. <laughs> wow, Jen. Are you reading? Wait, is this from the National Geographic Kids? <laughs> it's from that Geo. But it's the regular one, no, not the okay, kids not one. The kids one. I love the kids ones. Though. They're um, omnivores. Mm-hmm. Their group name is a herd, lame. There you go. That is kind of lame. They live 30 to 40 years in the wild. And they are seven to nine feet tall. Nope. 220 to 350 pounds of bird. Wow. Yeah. Although they can't fly. Guess how fast they can run? Freaking fast. 43 miles per hour. Shut up. Isn't that insane? That's so fast, especially that they're big. So big, Jen. So huge. Well, they can sprint. So like short distances that Mm. fast up to 43 miles per hour. But over a distance, like if they're just going to like, I'm going to just force gump it and I'm going to run for like a few days. Yeah. I don't know. But (laughs) over a distance, 31 miles per hour. Oh, so it's like really not that much less. Well, the cassowaries, that was their top speed. Right. This is just, you know, like I'm just running my pace. They're doing a yog. They're marathoning at a pace that they can do. They're not sprinting. Sprinting Mm -hmm. would be 43 miles per hour. And they use their wings as rudders to help them like change direction when they're running. That's so cool. Their legs are so long that they can cover 10 to 16 feet in a single stride. I feel like that's you with anybody taller than you walking in the mall or something. (laughs) I have to take like like 25 more steps than somebody taller than me. Obviously, their legs are super strong. And if they kick you in your face, you're going to die. They kick lions in their face. What? Yeah, because lions are, you know, lions. Yeah, yeah. They're hungry. They're cats. You know what? That's why these animals don't like cats. That's why cats worry because they probably came across some kind of big cat at one point in their life. That was like, I'm going to eat you. And they're like, like hell you are. I'm going to kick you in your face. Each two-toed foot has a long, sharp claw. Nice. So they only have two toes, apparently. The Casperies had three. So they got one more talon. Just slightly more lethal. (laughs) I have one talon more. (laughs) Uh, They live in small herds that typically contain less than a dozen. That Mm. is 12 birds. Not a baker's dozen? Nope. 13. They have an alpha male who will maintain the herd. Oh. And mostly he mates with the group's dominant hen. Oh, well then. 
That dominant male will also mate with some other females in the group. And then mm-hmm. there will be wandering males that just come in oh. and mate with what they call the lesser hens. All right. Like, that's rude. Anyway, so all the group's hens place their eggs in the dominant hen's nest. Oh, what? Yeah. Give me your eggs. I mean, all right. I mean, that's like, that's a little sister wife action right there. <laughs> it is, right? Yeah. So even though she's like, they have like a shared nest. Mm. Her eggs get the best spot in the nest. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then that dominant hen and the male, the king and queen of the ostrich's <laughs> family, they take turns incubating their eggs. And each egg weighs as much as two dozen chicken eggs. Wow. My that's, poor little chickens. That's heavy. They're like, wow. So I have to make 24 eggs to make one ostrich egg. Mm. It's crazy. Contrary to popular belief, Megan, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you knew this, ostriches do not bury their heads in the sand. I've always wondered. It came from, it looks like they do, and it's one of their defense mechanisms or behaviors. Mm -hmm. If they see a trouble coming, so say they are somewhere, and usually they would just run like hell because obviously like that's their thing. But if they're stuck and they cannot run, then they'll lie low and they'll press their necks to the ground in an attempt to look invisible like a rock because their heads are the same colors as the the sand okay and so from a distance it looks like they buried their heads in the sand when actually they're just i think if they put their heads down and it's just their floof bodies it looks like a tree or a bush bush. yeah or a really floofy rock yeah i mean it's pretty smart but they're not actually burying their heads in the sand because that never really made sense to me yeah i'm like how are you gonna breathe They have a few natural predators like cheetahs, lions, leopards, hunting dogs, and spotted hyenas. Mm. Other predators are Egyptian vultures and jackals, and they predate the eggs mostly. Right. Ostriches eat plants, roots, seeds, but they also eat insects, lizards, and other little munchy crunchies they find. And they're pretty harsh desert habitat, right? Yeah. Yeah. They have three stomachs. They don't have teeth. And so they eat little small stones to help grind their food. And so they need the three stomachs so they can break down all the food, like different foods that they eat. They eat rocks? They eat little rocks. Unlike all other living birds, ostriches secrete urine and feces separately. Weird. So they make it to peas and they make it to poops. (laughs) (laughs) Are you Uh, doing a onesie or a twosie? (laughs) They can say that because they're actually doing it. Yeah, that's different. I make it to peas. I make it to poops. (laughs) I wonder why they can do that and other birds cannot. I don't know because they're Mm. huge. Imagine Mm. it all going together. I think they just got space for two things to come out. There's enough room. There's enough room for it all (laughs) to come out. Because of their insanely huge size, Mm -hmm. they are, and unpredictability, they're considered highly aggressive. Depending on the season, ostriches can be observed alone in couples, small flocks, or enormous groups up to 50. To avoid predators and intruding humans, ostriches depend on their legs. They will definitely use their middle toe, which is (laughs) got the talon, and they'll punch you. They become aggressive when they feel threatened. They've been known to kill lions and other dangerous animals. However, kicks and slashes are rarely directed at humans. But most of the attacks originate from people agitating the birds, obviously. Mm. So when they kick you, it's at 2,000 pounds per square inch. 
that's why you're going to die if they kick you. To put it in perspective, this is, I got this from this article. If you consider the study of 70 elite level boxers, I think we've talked about this before, like how hard things can hit you. Yeah. That demonstrated that they could punch with an average force of 776 PSI. This means ostriches can exert nearly three times the strength of a skilled boxer. And all that effort is focused into the pointy tip of a four inch toenail. Oh, my God. Next time, my husband's like, well, cut your toenails, which I <laughs> actually keep my toenails really yeah, short. I was going to say. Just saying. I mean, we but have if a- he ever complains about it, I'll be like, listen, <laughs> how would you like it if four Mike Tysons like, <laughs> punched your leg with one giant four inch toenail? Yeah. So think about that. According to the Agriculture Marketing Resource Center, there are 258 ostrich farms in the United States alone. Mm-hmm. That's from a 2012 census, so probably more now, I'm guessing. They are used for both meat and their large eggs. That also increases the human exposure to ostriches, right? Mm -hmm. So it makes them more likely to be in a position to attack because they're around people more. It's common enough that there are directions online on the YouTubes of how to survive an ostrich attack. What? Yep. You can find like all kinds of stuff. I didn't really go into it because I'm like, just avoid doing those things. <laughs> yeah. Most attacks that ostriches make on people are non-fatal. I could I kept trying to find like where it said how many people, right, have been attacked. Mm-hmm. The only thing I could find was that there have been at least five confirmed deaths by ostrich. And then other things were saying five confirmed deaths by ostrich or emu. Mm. One of the most interesting stories, though, this is my last little bit about ostriches. And this is an attack story that was about Johnny Cash. What? Apparently, he had an exotic animal park. I believe it. He yeah. kept some exotic animals yeah, yeah. on his property, which had ostriches. And so he was, I guess he was just like walking around. And this was in 1981, walking through the woods. And he came across an aggressive male ostrich. And he pulled out this big stick, like a six foot. Because that's what one of the things they say is you want to keep your distance because their legs are super long. So you need to get an even longer (laughs) stick. (laughs) So he pulled out this six foot long stick and kind of swung it to try and make it go away. The bird dodged at him and slashed at him with this crazy toenail. It actually cut his stomach. But because he was wearing a giant belt buckle. Oh, my God. It didn't kill him. If he didn't have that belt buckle on. He would be dead. He would have been dead. But I want to know what this belt buckle looked like. Like, how golden was it? What was on it? Was it like Folsom Prison? It it was huge, guaranteed. What was on it? Well, and you wonder, like, what... A a ring of fire? Did it it get, like, scratched so much they had to, like, replace it? Like, or did he keep it someplace? Like, I almost died. Can we see this belt buckle? (laughs) We need to find out. Isn't that an amazing story? That's amazing. I freaking love Johnny Cash. Yeah. And this makes me love him more that he, his giant belt buckle saved him from a sure like death by ostrich. All right, Megan, let's talk about emus. Let's do it. Because I have a very fun story. And this is something that Kayleen mentioned that we should talk about. And I'm gonna. And you can't look up emus without finding this. So the common name for emu is common emu. (laughs) Wow. Nat Geo coming at you. I'm not even going to say they're Scientific name, because it's like a whole page long and I just cannot. A group of emus is called. I'm looking at Megan. I'm Uh, so, I just need you. This is just, it's a beautiful thing. Angels? No, (laughs) I love that. It's called a mob. It's so good. That's pretty good. They live around 10 to 20 years in the wild. 
they get to a little over five feet or a little more than six feet tall. Mm. It's pretty damn tall. 66 to 100 pounds. So slightly smaller weight Stature. and girth mm. than the cassowary. According to the IUCN, their conservation status is of least concern. Mm. In Australia, there are between 625,000 to 725,000 wild emus. Oh, wow. Globally, they're farmed for meat, leather, and oil. Leather? Leather. The common emu may not be able to fly, but it can run as well. It can run up to about 30 miles per hour. So I would say if we had a race between the ostrich, the cassowary, and the emu, they might come in last. Each emu foot has three forward-facing toes, three, and also can punch a pretty powerful kick with some crazy toenails. Emus are members of the ratite family. So same, 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 ostriches, cassowaries. They are found in Australia, but also that's primarily where they're from, but they're also in New Guinea, Indonesia, Solomon Islands, and the Philippines. Oh, random. I don't know if they were brought to the introduced or, yeah. introduced it seems like they're mostly australian they like to be in hot arid habitats their color is grayish to brownish that their feathers which are almost complete protection from solar radiation mm. though equipped they say with this natural sunscreen they also like to live in grasslands savannas and forests preferring areas with access to standing water they range over large areas. They forage on fruits, seeds, plant shoots, small animals, animal droppings, and insects. They mate and nest throughout the Australian winter. And they say it's not always a loving affair. The females have been known to fight viciously over unpaired males. Oh, okay. There's some like cat fights. Some like Thunderdome stuff going on there. <laughs> the mating pairs, and maybe this is why, they stay together for up to five months. The females lay, of course, big green eggs, emerald green, oh. which is kind of beautiful. And they have like big, huge ground nests. And so the males incubate the eggs for about seven weeks. They don't eat or do anything. They don't drink. They don't poop during that time. What? Yeah. They just sit there and hold it in. They don't the, leave the nest at all. At the end of that seven weeks, they're just like pee pee dancing. <laughs> Guess what the female does? What? She just leaves. <laughs> She just goes. These birds, man. She just leaves and goes and finds another dude. She'll do the same thing. Just making them sit on the nest for... That's amazing. Not to even use it. You cannot even poop for the whole time. The chicks will stay with the dad for about four months until they're able to eat on their own. Predators of the emu include dingoes, wedge-tailed eagles, snakes, <laughs> and of course humans. One emu egg can make an omelet big enough to feed four to six adults. Well, done and done. Yeah. Well, now I just need to get some emus. Jen, get an emu. So now I'm going to talk about the emu wars, which is also known as, in history, known as the most epic human wildlife conflict ever. What? Yes. Because Australia. I've never heard of this. So let me tell you all about it. It's okay. super interesting. After World War One, there was a bunch of veterans, right, that mm -hmm. were discharged that had served in the war and they were given land by the Australian government so they could start farming in Western Australia. And those areas weren't the best for farming. It was a lot of work. It was really hard. Just blood, sweat and tears just to get your wheat or whatever they were growing to come up. Mm -hmm. And then in 1929, Great Depression, it was even more difficult. They got more assistance and more subsidies. And in spite of all of that, 
wheat prices continued to fall. And in 1932, it was getting really bad for these farmers. They wanted to sell their wheat, but the prices were so low that things were the tension was building with the government between these farmers because it was right. supposed to be to help them. Right. Right. This got even worse because there was an arrival of more than 20,000 emus that started invading these farms. I guess emus regularly migrated from their breeding season. They headed to the coast from inland regions. But because all this land had been cleared and there was like water supplies being set up all over the place for people's livestock, mm-hmm. you know, for these Western Australian farmers, emus like were like, this is great. <laughs> they're like, there's water, there's like some wheat. We can just hang out here. Yeah. So they were just like tearing it up. Here are these farmers who are already getting like, they're barely able to bring these crops up. They're not getting paid what they're supposed to. And now these emus are coming in and just tearing it up, right? Oh, no. They got really upset about it. So the farmers went back to the government mm-hmm. and they ended up talking to the minister of defense because maybe it's the defense that gave them, you know, all these benefits. Yeah. At that time, the minister of defense was this guy, Sir George Pierce. Since all the farmers were ex-soldiers, they were very aware. And because it's the thing of like World War One, right? Yeah. They were very aware of like machine guns and how effective they were. And so they actually requested to have machine guns to help them shoot these emus. The emus? Yeah. Oh, no. Pierce was like, oh, yeah, I'll give you guys some machine guns. That sounds fun, right? But here's the conditions. The guns have to be used by military personnel. And the troops that are going to be transported to bring the guns and help out was to be financed by the Western Australian government. And the farmers would have to provide food, accommodation and payment for just the ammunition. So if like the troops came over, the farmers had to accommodate them, like feed them and give them a place to stay to help them like get rid of all these emus. Right. But then they would also have to pay for the bullets and the ammunition. Yeah. But the troops and the guns themselves would come over. He also, Pierce also supported the deployment on the grounds that the birds would make good target practice. Like it's a training exercise. It was like, this is great. It's a training exercise. It helps the farmers. And, you know, this is this is going to be helpful. And I'm sure everybody was like, this is going to be fun. Think about it. Except for the emus. The emus were like. They were living in bliss at that moment. They didn't know what was happening. They're like, we love this wheat. Thank this you for great. the water. They're they're setting up fireworks to celebrate our arrival. <laughs> and so at this time, they brought in the cinematographer to film it, like what was happening. What? Yes. Oh, God. Now the war was going to begin. Sir George Pierce ordered the army to call the emu population. He was also later called the minister of the emu war. It was supposed to begin in October of 1932. The war was conducted under the command of Major G.P.W. Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery. Like, this is like a big deal, right? This is intense. And just the fact that you're using the word war, I mean, I get it on their side. They're like, this is a war, but these are, you're killing animals. I mean, it's not a war. Exactly. They were like, okay, let's do this. Operation Kill Emus. But then it started raining and they're like, oh, it's raining. So they held off because of rain. I just think that's really funny because in normal war, I don't know. Yeah, you would just keep, going. just keep going. Yeah. But they didn't want to mess up the machine guns because it was like 1930s. And sure. Probably they were waterproof. I don't know. But and also when I guess when it rains, the emus kind of tend to scatter. Right. More fast forward. Like this is in October. So November 2nd, it stopped raining, apparently. And the troops were deployed with orders to assist the farmers. And according to the newspaper account, collect 100 emu skins so that their feathers could be reused to make hats. 
for the horsemen. Mm. It's amazing. So here was their first attempt. On November 2nd, the men traveled to Campion, which is where some 50 emus were sighted. The birds were out of range Mm -hmm. for the guns. People attempted to herd the emus closer, but the birds split into all these little smaller groups. (laughs) And so it was like impossible. So then after that didn't work because they were out of range, the second round of gunfire that they tried was able to kill like a few birds. And later the same day, a small flock was encountered, maybe like a dozen birds and they were killed. So, so far with these big machine guns and troops, they've killed like a handful. So, so far. The next significant event was a couple days later on November 4th, they established this ambush near a local dam and there were more than a thousand emus spotted heading towards their position. This time the gunners were, they waited until the birds were close enough to start firing on them, but their gun jammed. And that was after they only killed maybe like 12 birds. The remainder had scattered before they could get any more and no Mm. more birds were sighted the rest of the day in the days that followed they moved further south and they saw some birds were reported to be fairly tame but there was only limited success in spite of their efforts by the fourth day the campaign the army noted that each pack seems to have their own leader now (laughs) of emus (laughs) a big black plumped bird which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns (laughs) them of our approach (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry this is so funny to me just because oh it's it's hilarious it's great (laughs) at one point meredith went so far as to mount one of the guns on a truck Like he put it on a truck, which I'm sure back then wasn't easy, right? Yeah. But it was like completely didn't work because the truck couldn't, the truck was, it was like so bumpy. Yeah. They couldn't get a shot basically. (laughs) And they're like, this is too well we got. And the emus are just like, let's go. (laughs) On November 8th, this was six days later, Mm -hmm. 2,500 rounds of ammunition had been fired. The number of birds killed was, they weren't sure, but it was estimated to be around 50. Mm Mm-hmm. The official report from Meredith was that none of his men had suffered any casualties. This is very funny. What would they get casualty? They're shooting guns from very far away at these birds. At these poor birds, right? Come on. Ornithologist Dominique Cerventi commented, the machine gunner's dreams of point blank fire into serried masses of emus was soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made the use of military equipment uneconomic. (laughs) Guerrilla tactics. I love it. They're they're emus. They're emus. They're birds. You are scaring them with your guns. They're running away. Yes. And then he said, a crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. On November 8th, members of the Australian House of Representatives discussed the operation and then it got all this negative press because remember they were filming it, right? Yeah. And the local media was like, they had claimed that only a few emus had died. So Pierce, the main guy, withdrew the military personnel and the guns on November 8th. After he withdrew them, that Major Meredith compared the emus to Zulus and commented on the striking maneuverability of emus, even while badly wounded. Major Meredith apparently is quoted as saying, if we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. I don't know what that means in 1932. Yeah. What dum-dum bullets are. 
I don't know, but apparently he's just saying like it was really hard to get them. I love that they realize their mistake. No, because now there's a second attempt. No! So after they withdrew the military, the emu attacks on crops continued and farmers mm. again were like, hello, we we still need help getting rid of these emus because they're still destroying our crops. Mm. They also blame the hot weather and drought that brought the emus invading the farms because if there's drought everywhere, then of course they're going to come to where there's food and water. Mm -hmm. So James Mitchell, who was the premier of Western Australia, he was very supportive of the farmers. And he was like, yeah, we should give them some military assistance. Let's do this. At the same time, a report from the base commander was issued that indicated 300 emus had been killed in the initial operation. I guess because of the base commander's report, and he's like, yeah, they did pretty good. Like, they killed 300. I mean, I don't know how much ammunition and, like... Right. The Minister of Defense approved a resumption of the military efforts. He's like, okay, here we go. Let's we'll try one more time. Uh, he explained that why the soldiers were necessary to combat the serious agricultural threat of the large emu population. Like, they needed to do this. Mm -hmm. It's a huge threat. Although the military had agreed to lend guns to the Western Australian government on the expectation that they would provide necessary people, Meredith, same guy, was sent back out to the field because mm -hmm. he was the experienced machine gun guy, apparently. Sure, sure. They went back out on November 13th, 1932. They did okay, like the first couple of days. They got 40. 40 okay. On the third day, November 15th, it was much less successful. But by December 2nd, the soldiers were killing approximately 100 per week. Oh. And Meredith was called back on December 10th. And his report claims they killed 986 with 9,860 rounds. That is the rate of exactly 10 rounds per kill. Wow. <laughs> then he claimed that there were 2,500 wounded birds that had died eventually of their injuries. So he said it was a successful call. Mm. But there was an article around that time on August 23rd, 1935, that reported that although the use of machine guns had been criticized in many quarters, the method proved effective and saved what remained of the wheat. I don't know if effective is the right word. I, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that I get it. There's an agricultural thing. There's a lot of stress going on with the like drought conditions. But it's a native species. Yeah. Even though they had all these problems, the farmers kept asking for more help from the military. Mm -hmm. And they asked in 1934 and 1943, 1948, every time the government was like, no, we're not. I'm sorry. Yeah. We can't. We can't do it. We can't afford the bullets anymore. So they went back to this original system that they had before this war. Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes. And they went back to a bounty system that had initially started in 1923. Mm -hmm. And they say that it was effective. There were 57,000 bounties were claimed over a six-month period in 1934. Wow. That's a lot. By December 1932, the word emu war had spread and it even to the UK. The conservationists over in the UK were like not happy. Mm -mm. They were like, your guys are calling a rare bird. Mm. Like, and a native bird. Dominique Cerventi and Hubert Whittle, they were eminent Australian ornithologists, and they called the war as an attempt at mass destruction of the birds. Throughout 1930s and later, an exclusion barrier fence, that was kind of what they ended up using to keep the emus out and other things like dingoes and rabbits. Um, and that was another problem with the emus is they were breaking. There was already, I think, the rabbit fence. 
the emus were actually trying to get in and they were messing up that fence, which was another reason they were trying to mm. kill native species. In November 1950, Hugh Leslie raised the issue of emus in the federal parliament and tried to get the army minister to send more ammunition for the farmers. They did actually approve 500,000 rounds of ammunition, but I mean, we're talking like 30s, 40s, 50s. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, nowadays, you know, you will not see such things. Like now they try to protect emus. And there's actually now there's a, in 2019, there was a musical adaptation of the story. Oh my God, I love it. And in 2022, there is a new movie coming out written by John Cleese, Monty Franklin, and Rob Schneider. Oh my God. Just prepare yourselves. I cannot even wait. I know. I did not know about this movie. I know. So now you have a little history. I'm so excited right now. And now you know there's a movie coming. So I have an organization to support. I don't remember if I've done this one before, but it's the Bush Heritage Australia. Okay. It's an independent not-for-profit that buys and manages land for conservation and works in partnerships with Aboriginal people and that agriculture sector. So has pulls everybody together to try and set aside some protected areas. It says to protect our irreplaceable landscapes and our magnificent native species forever. It's at bushheritage.org.au. For emus, they have a lot on some of their reserves Mm -hmm. and they're protecting emu chicks by reducing feral cat, fox and pig populations. They remove internal fences and reduce competition from stock and feral herbivores. All right. Yeah. So they're actually doing like real work with emus. So I thought that was cool. That's a great. I've enjoyed this episode a lot. (laughs) It's pretty fun, right? So so there's a lot of YouTube videos that are kind of hilarious because everybody just thinks it's funny. It's funny because they really like it was a real military operation. Right. Against some birds. They called it the emu war. They called it the emu war. That's great. I hope you enjoyed that. So, Megan. I did. I did. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about for this this episode's emergency preparedness kit. Mm-hmm. And what I think is that, OK, really, the issue is protecting yourself against those claws for us. Right. Uh huh. I was thinking, like, am I going to go Monty Python? Am I going to like there's so many options there's here. So but many I options. really feel like I felt bad for that guy who fell over. And he got attacked by his own bird. Like yeah. that, you know, that's super sad. Yeah. That's super sad. I'm thinking for all three of these Mm -hmm. cassowaries, emus, ostriches, what you need is the little rubber toe cap that you put on your cats, but like big, but like a big version of that. So you clip their toe a little bit and then you just glue it on the end. Uh huh. Yeah. A little rubber toe cap for their. And they come in all colors. You can get, I put glitter ones on my cats. Yeah. And I did Christmas ones. So many options. So many options. yeah, Yeah. You need a rubber toe cap for their murderous claw. Perfect. So thanks for the great story ideas. Keep them coming. I hope you enjoyed it. Yay. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by Jonathan Pillsbury. We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us by following us on Instagram or Twitter, listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com, where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and Nature Nerd Artisans page. If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on our website or to our email, you'regonnadieoutthere at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye.
So to construct the robot, the researchers used a shape memory alloy material that transforms to its, quote, remembered shape when heated up. So basically, it kind of reminds me of like a fortune teller at like a Halloween carnival and they would have those little fish that would curl up in your hand. It'd be like, you're going to be in love. And they would they would put a little red kind of like plastic fish in your hand. And the warmth of your hand actually made the sides of the fish curl up. And so it would be like, you're going to find the love of your life tonight because of how the I fish. I never went to one of those. What? That's not cool. I went to I one. Want, I want that to happen. It was amazing. I went to one every year at my Catholic church growing up, which oh. when I think about it now, I'm like, this is why I love wow, you guys. <laughs> you drink. You smoke, you, you fortune curse, tellers, you have fortune tellers. I, I just all the things. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what it makes me think of. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. Let me tell you, one of my favorite movies that's like not a good movie. It's really not a great. It's called I think it's called Blended. It's where. Oh, Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler yes. and Drew Barrymore are, you know, single and they've got kids. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he rides an ostrich or he gets a kid to ride an ostrich. I don't know. It's a stupid part of the movie, but uh-huh. I, it's so funny to me. And I hope that they don't do those kinds of things. Like it did seem a little bit like like ecotourism gone wrong. But that scene, for some reason, it just. Was it a real ostrich I mean, being ridden? I think there was a real ostrich on set. I think it was like CGI'd or they did some kind of okay. mechanical thing. Yeah, yeah. Because like I, I feel like that Academy for Animal yeah. Rights would not be. They cool would with that. be like that's not cool. Yeah. yeah, they would not pass the the bill. <laughs> also, I don't know if you remember, but we know former Peace Corps friend of ours who <laughs> <laughs> she did have some long she did not ass cut toenails. Her toenails for like I don't know how many months, and we were like, yeah. dude, those are talons. Like they go over like your they're gross. Your slippers, like you have got to. Please. God. Yeah, that was amazing. And she just thought it was hilarious. It was, it was great. And it wasn't. It was gross. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious too. <laughs> anyway. What about that? Would be the worst way to die as a celebrity <laughs> just by one of the animals that you keep? Like, oh my God. Murder. Yeah. I feel like Ted Nugent might be one of those people who will get murdered by an animal that he keeps. Because doesn't he have a bunch of animals? I feel like he does. I have no idea what Ted Nugent does with his life. I'm glad that you tend to know something. I have no idea. I don't know. I read. Some I didn't weird know stuff. Johnny Cash had yeah. exotic animals. Yeah. yeah, like that's that wasn't in the movie. If they didn't put it in the movie, it's not true. It didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Guys, is somebody tracking this? We need somebody that listens to You're Gonna Die Out There to track all the... I mean, I guess you can just, look, you just look it up. Yeah. I think they're all in it already. Somebody you, already did that, you, but... You know how much work that would be to go through each episode and like, what, what, what do we say these were? Yeah, we have to go through every, every, all the notes. Oh, God, that's a lot of work. We need one super fan. Yeah. I don't think we have a super, a super, super fan. Cat. Cat, <laughs> we need you. <laughs> she puts on her like superhero cape. For sure. Emu oil, though. Haven't you ever? I've never heard of emu oil or emu leather. I remember when I worked at a animal hospital Mm -hmm. and I can't remember what it was for, but some like the doctor working there was like, here, put this emu oil on your dog's food. It'll really help their coat. And I was like, how do you get emu oil? (laughs) (laughs) Like, do they sweat it? And then you just kind (laughs) of... Do they drip it? I don't know what happens. Right? They just call it, it. There must be like a fat collection or something. Yeah. 
after they've been pretty sure they got to die for that yeah i I feel bad about it now but you know whatever little side story Uh is that i when i lived in georgia but on the way to a friend's house there was an emu farm Mm -hmm. and they would regularly get out and I, rem- <laughs> I remember that it was like a thing that like they would just be like, around, like, the emus like are out again. Yeah. And one summer I was like, you know what? I'm going to ride my bike to this friend's house, like mm-hmm. from my house. It was pretty far. I remember riding past there and like seeing them just like chilling out and the thing be like, God, these birds are, why are they here? We're in like Georgia. Like, why are they here? <laughs> like, this is so creepy. They don't belong here. What if they were cassowaries? Would you have been scared? Uh, I think I'd probably been like, oh, cool. Look at those birds. I probably at that point in my life would have rode over to the side of the fence and been like, hey, okay, you're cute. You look good. Can I feed you? You Like a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just like, it just slashes your face. We wouldn't have this podcast. No. Yeah. That would be really sad. I feel like if there were a little side story about emus like stealthily going into their camps at night and just like slitting the throats of soldiers or something. With their toenail. Yeah, just like. But that the part would be where they funny. reported that there was no casualties on the like human side, it's like, really? Yeah. What if there were casualties? That's the thing. It's like, wow, that would be even worse. That would be so great. <laughs> so embarrassing. Yeah. Oh. So go check it out. We got to find this movie. So I have a bunch of links for all the... The big birds, the big scary birds. Yeah.